0: Welcome to The Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at The Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live at the Deer Pile on April 17th, 2014. The theme of the evening was Girls, Girls! Girls! And if you haven't heard the big news, The Narrators is changing venues starting in May. May 21st, we move to our new home, the Buntport Theater at 717 LaPan Street. The show will still be free and is at 8 p.m. All right, we're going to keep on moving. So our next storyteller, she's actually a favorite of the show. She's been on the show a whole bunch of times. Uh, She actually is the co-host of an award-winning podcast of her own. It's called These Things Matter, wherein uh, she and her co-host Kevin O'Brien sort of pick apart all of our pop cultural obsessions, and they invite fun guests onto the show to help them do so. They are actually celebrating their two-year anniversary next Thursday at the Sidewinder Tavern with a live taping of their podcast. Uh, They've invited back uh, past guests, and they're each going to tell a story about a song that they love. So it should be fun. It's uh, next Thursday, April 24th, Sidewinder Tavern, 8 p.m., Name of the podcast is These Things Matter. Please help me welcome Taylor Gonda.
1: Hey, guys. I just want to say really quickly, Robert is right. I have have been doing this a while, and I actually met Robert doing The Narrators. I sat down at his table randomly, and now we're friends, and it's great. Um, and I, I've, I just realized I've been coming to and doing this show for four years, which is crazy that it's four years old. And I'm so excited for you guys to get to Buntport. It's going to be awesome. The first time I had more than two or three friends was in the sixth grade. I'm really not sure how it happened. Maybe it was being in band and choir and on a softball team with 10 or so of the same girls. Maybe it was starting middle school, feeling more grown up, trying to be more like teenagers. Maybe it was just that I stopped playing football every day with the boys at school because they would never throw to me, and even though I would score a touchdown every every time they did, boys are stupid. Um, I think the most likely answer was that we were adopting a herd mentality in order to survive. It was purely out of fear. We clung together simply because we surveyed the new environment, middle school, 7th graders, popularity, boys, hormones, and we realized we could not survive on our own. We were absolutely not the popular kids. Looking back, I don't know why the popular kids were the popular kids. Maybe me and my friends just had slightly more acne, slightly less stylish clothes, slightly less money, and we didn't wear as much, as much makeup. We were also, and more importantly, not the unpopular kids. We were not full-blown geeks or dweebs or nerds or klutzes or doofuses or any other brilliant name we gave to the kids who were just slightly out of step with their more sophisticated and worldly 13-year-old classmates. (laughs) Me and my friends were right in the middle. We never ruffled any feathers one way or the other. We liked all the popular music. We knew all the popular dances. We wanted to be exactly like what our TVs told us we should want to be like. We were average, typical. We were of no threat to anyone ever. The true nature of who we were as people would not be revealed for years and years. If I met any of those girls today, I would not recognize them. The group consisted of about, about eight of us, including myself and one gay guy who we didn't think was gay, but just a nice guy who liked to hang out with us. <laughs> there was an Erica, an Amanda, a couple of Lindsay's, a Kristen, a Carrie, and an Emily. That's about as deep as our friendship got. I can't even remember their last names. I can see them in my mind and I get occasional flashes of their personalities when I think back and I remember only bits and pieces of sleepovers and birthday parties, like random pieces of a puzzle. Erica was the poorest, I remember that, though she did have the board game mall madness, so. Uh, <laughs> I stayed at her house once and her dad made us watch the Kevin Kline, Alan Rickman classic, January Man. It's terrible, don't bother. She also had a cute older brother. There was one sleepover where someone put someone else's panties on his bedroom door handle. This was the height of adolescent girl prankdom, guaranteed to elicit maximum gasps and giggles. There was also a birthday party, one of the Lindsays, I think, where the gay guy, Jay, taught us all the dance moves for the video, If, by Janet Jackson. Which, for me, personally, was the most sexual thing I'd ever done up to that point. (laughs) All of the hip thrusting, that sort of thing. (laughs) We were all in band together, saxophones, clarinets, flutes. I was the first chair saxophonist. Erica sat next to me playing the barry sax. Since the other girls played more traditionally feminine instruments, they occasionally joked that Eric and I were lesbians. Kristen had all wicker furniture for some reason. White wicker for her dresser, her vanity, her bed. Her mom was in real estate and didn't understand why I cried so uncontrollably one night when I was at their house and we watched the Dead Poet Society. Carrie was tall, with wispy blonde hair, and she taught me what sarcasm was. Or rather, she sarcastically insulted me until I understood she was just joking. <laughs> we were all smart girls, teachers' pets. We'd stay after school, hanging out with the teachers until they went home at five. One time I accidentally called our favorite teacher mom, and nobody ever forgot it. But the girl I remember most, the queen of our little band of girls who never fit in with anybody, was Emily. Emily was short with straight brunette hair and glasses, and she was a bitch. Now, I hate that word, and I would certainly never call a 13-year-old a bitch, but she was a bitch. I was lugging my 1950s-era saxophone in its ridiculously heavy case next to her one day while she was floating along with her flute, and she started telling me everything she knew about sex, which is, of course, an encyclopedia of rumors and lies, and she cackled, absolutely cackled, when I said I didn't know what pubes were. We would walk home from school together often, her house was on the way to mine, and I'd stop in for a Coke and we'd play a game I think was called Cavemen on the computer. She cackled again when I couldn't complete a simple task using a series of ignorant cavemen as tools. She was mean. She'd lash out. She'd be laughing with you one moment and at you the next. I knew her mom was pretty crazy, and looking back, I'm certain she didn't have a great home life, but I didn't know that then. I just felt attacked, randomly, whenever she felt like it. At some point, there was a note. I'm not even sure I saw the note. I might have just heard about it. And it said something about how Emily didn't like me. I can't even remember how, but I came to believe that my friends were going to ditch me, that Emily had led a coup. They hated me. They wanted me out sooner rather than later. I say believe because to this day, I have no idea if this was just my feverish, insecure adolescent brain that decided this or if it was actually said out loud. It's all a bit of a blur. Either way, I was paranoid the night of Emily's birthday party sleepover. Her mom had moved into a new house that had a hot tub, so we were all excited to go over. But I was on the lookout, trying to decipher any sign of the thing I feared most, that these girls had a plan to crush what little friendship we had, that I was so unworthy, that I had transgressed some unknown law, that I was just that uncool. We listened to Ace of Bass, and of course Janet, and we watched The Man in the Moon, which is absolutely the perfect movie for a group of 13-year-old girls and one gay boy to watch at a sleepover. <laughs> we were all in love with Jason London by the end. I don't know if you know it, it's a whole love story in the 50s, he dies. It's, I'm sorry, spoiler. <laughs> My fears were forgotten as we got ready for bed because nothing had happened. And how could anything happen as long as someone like Jason London was in the world? Some feverish dreams occurred in some tightly zipped sleeping bags that night. In the morning we had breakfast and it was decided that we'd go for a walk in the park across the street from from Emily's new house. I remember there was giggling and whispers. There were girls taking dishes to sinks talking softly to one another. My suspicions were raised. We left the house and started walking. Everyone was ahead of me. A gaggle of geese with me waddling behind red in the face. More giggling, more whispers. We ended up near a tall bush and suddenly all my friends started running. All of them. They took off laughing, seemingly intentionally away from me until they were on the far side of a bush and I, having anticipated something was coming, ran around the other side, countering their move, tears already streaming down my face. I caught them before they could go further and I screamed, I know what you guys are doing! And I ran. I ran away. I ran home. I lived only a few blocks away from the park, so I ran to my house. I ran and I ran and I cried and I ran. And I burst through the door and I frightened my mom and ran into my room and closed the door and leapt onto my bed and bawled my eyes out. A few of the girls had followed me all the way to my house. My mom let them in and they tried to figure out what was going on. We weren't trying to ditch you, they said. We would never ditch you. Then why did you all run away? We were were playing a game, they said. Through my tears and pain and hysterics, I was never able to actually ascertain if I had imagined that they had been so mean. The next few weeks at school were terrible. Emily wrote me a letter in which she called me a con- conceited for thinking that any of them cared about me enough to even bother ditching me. Like I said, a bitch. <laughs> It seemed like there had been an intentional plan, or yes, an intentional plan, but some of the girls were for it and some were against it, and nobody had really made a decision. Parents were called into administration offices, adults tried to sort it all out, nothing was really resolved. My tenuous friendship with those kids faded away over the next few years. Eventually I made new friends, I started participating in theater and jazz band, which were my saving graces, and I drifted away from those friendships of happenstance, of convenience, of fear, I really hope they're all doing well. I mean, we were 13, after all. I wonder if they remember when we were, as Tori Amos says, hiding with the Raisin Girls. We all thought it was a good solution.
0: Thank you. That's Taylor Gonda. Our first story, this is her... First time on the show, we actually worked together at the museum, uh, Corrupting Children's Minds. She informed me when she got here today that she has been dissecting hearts with children all day long and can barely talk. Uh, She is a jazz singer, a blues singer, and uh, she doesn't have any gigs coming up, but if you want to find out more about where she's playing around town, uh, you can find her at westbrookjazz.com. Please welcome Julia Wilson.
2: Oh, girl, look at your life. She's a lot like you were. So I grew up in southern Missouri. I saw a lot of things in the backwoods of southern Missouri. But I never, ever thought I would see my mama rise from the dead. I come from a long line of wild girls. Yeah. Yeah, I come from a long line of wild girls, starting probably with my great, great, great Aunt Libby. And Aunt Libby lived in St. Louis in the late 1800s. She was a concert pianist at 10. And then she got a little bit older and ragtime hit. And she said, screw this, I'm playing ragtime. So she was essentially a rap artist very early on. First ever, yeah. So, I got a ragtime player. Let's see. And then I had another great, great aunt, Helen, who loved photography. And she loved people taking pictures of her. And there was this picture of her from the early 1900s. She's wearing a very tall collared shirt. Her hair is up in a bun, like real proper. She's got a long skirt on, big old boots. And the shot is straight up. And she's about 35 feet up an oak tree. And she's looking down at this camera, essentially like, you can make me wear this stuff, but I'm still going to fucking climb this tree. (laughs) And then there's my grandma, Zella, who was the first girl in town to walk down Main Street wearing pants. So, everyone go, whew hot women however my mother was not one of them my mother let's see what I knew about her she knew how to iron she knew how to pick beans she knew how to can beans she knew how to slop a hog and she knew how to what else feed a whole bunch of men that were baling hay So that was my mama growing up, and I was cut and dry, and that's all I believed about her. And then came my Uncle Don's funeral. Now, Uncle Don, he traded horses. So he was essentially a professional bullshitter and a little bit of a thief. So when it was time for my Uncle Don to be buried out in the family cemetery the King Family Cemetery, way out in southern Missouri. And if you guys don't know southern Missouri, it's pretty much Arkansas. And way out in those hills, it's hot and it's sweaty and it's buggy. And every clan that lives in those hills has a family cemetery. This was the King Family Cemetery. And there was like the Lashleys and there was the Jones over on uh, Shiny Mountain. There was, you know, all these. Well, I belonged to the King clan and we were in the King family cemetery and we were waiting for the casket to arrive. And I could peruse and look across all these people. And I could tell King, 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 King. You could just tell them by either the way they looked, the way they talked, or how many times they'd been arrested. And it was the King family. And there was this one guy who was about six foot four and probably about. Eighty-five years old, and he looked like he had once been blonde, and he did not fit the King family. So I had to figure out who he was. So I walked across the cemetery while we waited for the casket to arrive. And I walked straight up to him, and I said, hello, my name is Julia King. I'm daughter Jack King, which is how you introduce yourself in the South. You're always the daughter or son of somebody. So I am Julie King, daughter of uh, Jack King. And he looked at me and he said, well, my name is Charles. And that must make you Bernice's daughter. And I said, hmm. Well, my mama had been dead for about three years. And I thought, hmm, who is this man? I said, you knew my mama? And he said, oh, honey. <laughs> I knew your mama. And then the wheel started turning. And I said, huh, how would you know my mama? He said, well, back when we were young, in, uh, uh, probably right after World War II, she went up to the city, and, and uh, up to St. Louis, and she was hanging out with your Uncle Don, who's passed away, and her sister, Aunt Shirley, Uncle Don's wife. And the four of us, we ran all over that place. Oh, man, that woman was a spitfire. And I said, wait a second. You're talking about my mama, Bernice, the ironer. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, she was the life of the party. She was the one that always pushed us a little farther, to go a little bit farther and push that edge and try new wild and crazy things. And I was like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> I said, are you serious? My mama. And he said, yeah. And then I said, you got to tell me more cuz this is not the mama I grew up knowing. And he said, "Well, hun, here comes your Uncle Dan Don, here comes the casket, and here's all you need to know." And he leaned in, this big old tall man with a cane, and he looked at me real close, and he said, "Your mama was one fine lady." And I said, "Hmm." And then he leaned in a little bit closer. And he looked me straight in the eyes, and he said, and you look just like her. (laughs) And at that moment, I realized my mother had risen from the dead, and through me, he saw her. And my mama had risen from the dead, and through him, I saw her. Oh, girl, look at your life. You're a lot like her.
0: The narrator's podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The narrator's podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to the narratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.